Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, and I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. In this episode, we're looking at what role green, low-carbon solutions can play in the wake of COVID to get Scotland's and the UK's economies back on their feet. So May 2021 is host of both the Scottish and Welsh parliamentary elections and local elections in England. And as such, we've seen every party offer their own vision of what a post-COVID recovery might look like, with some focusing on making it a green recovery. But the question is just how feasible and how beneficial are these proposals and how do they fit into a wider just transition? Later, we're chatting with Mary Spowage from the Fraser of Allender Institute. Mary has been looking at what a green recovery might look like in Scotland. I suppose the large circuit break we've had in our economy could provide an opportunity to do things differently. It's certainly accelerated a number of initiatives around technological change. It's maybe made everybody think a bit differently about the model of working and how they might use office space or city centres in the future. We'll also hear from Miriam Brett, who's Director of Research at the Commonwealth Think Tank, about the role of a local Green New Deal for COVID recovery, not just in Scotland, but across the UK in the months and years to come. The way in which we treated COVID is all, with the sense of urgency is the way that we need to treat the climate crisis just now. And we can't be timid in our approach because there's a deadline and we're getting closer to it. And as always, we want to hear from you. Please tell us what you think of the podcast and ask questions or suggest topics for future episodes. You can tweet us. And for now, we are at energyrev underscore UK. And please use the hashtag Local Zero. But first, let's bring in Fraser Stewart, who is with us as always. Fraser, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you, Becky. How is everybody else? Yeah, no, tip top. Yep, very well here. Thanks, Fraser. Are we excited for today's episode? It's a big, big, big one, I think, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It doesn't get bigger than a post-COVID green recovery stimulus package. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking billions, trillions. I'm not sure what comes after that, but it's lots. It's lots of cash. And the potential to affect everyone across society in Scotland, the UK, the world. I mean, it's absolutely huge and something that's got to be playing on everybody's minds as we start to come out of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that I'm ever the optimist, right? And I don't know if you guys feel the same, but obviously 
it's a it's a moment we have to dig ourselves out of. But do we think it's a an opportunity in terms of green, in terms of net zero? Do you think this is a something we have to build into the recovery? Yeah, I mean, for me, straight away, it, it's an obvious yes, and that's largely because we have to consider the cost of net zero. The Committee on Climate Change pointing to you know each year we're having to invest around. 10 billion from 2020, and this is going to rise up to about 50 billion from 2030. And this is long-term investment, so we've got to do that. But at the same time, of course, you know the opportunity is there to uh, put right the damage that COVID has done. So we're looking at GDP being 8% below um, levels in February uh, last year. Uh, we're seeing 800,000 payroll jobs just disappeared. And we've got nearly 5 million people still on furlough. So something's got to give. We've got to spend cash and we've got to put money back in people's pockets. I'm, I'm with you, Matt. I'm definitely, I definitely have my days where I do look at this as an opportunity um, and an opportunity to try and be very considerate about the pathway forward and try and, you know, put right some of the inequalities that we face today. And then I have my more negative moments where I've probably read the news, you know, I've signed on to the BBC app or I've oh, turned don't, don't on do the that. TV. Do yeah. Bad, bad idea. Yeah, definitely sort of, I think in the UK, certainly we are starting to progress forward. I think the rollout of the vaccine program has had a massive, um, massive impact on certainly my mindset when I look at my life, my family's life and the opportunities. And then I look at what's happening in India, for example, and you, you start to really see some of these inequalities at play when you start to look at that bigger global picture. And that makes me, I guess, question things a bit more and I guess particularly think about, you know, how we can deliver this on a global level. So I think, you know, we need to talk about, we need to talk about what's happening in our own backyards. We need to understand what, what we're going to do in Scotland and in the UK and, and how we can start to drive that forward. But I think we can't be you know, forgetful of that bigger picture and how we are part of a, a global society. And if a country as big as India is struggling with this pandemic, and if there are huge inequality issues in terms of access to the vaccine and, and access to finance to bring us out of the recovery and so on, you know, that's, I think that's something we've definitely got to start to think about as well. I completely agree, Becky, and I'm glad you highlight the, the global inequality as well. I think when we talk about local, we can detach that sometimes. So, I'm guessing both of you know uh, the esteemed Lord Nicholas Stern, right in the Stern Report back in the 2000s. Um, he's actually had a pop at trying to define what a green recovery is. And I have to say, his definitions go, it's pretty, pretty damn impressive. So he's, he's called it, um, and I'll get your feedback on this, whether you agree or not. He's defined it as a well-designed recovery package that can boost aggregate demand and employment in the short term boost productivity and competitiveness in the medium term and bring about the transformation needed for inclusive, sustainable and resilient growth. You know, if that is a green recovery, that's one hell of a mountain we've got to climb. Yes, it is. That is, um, I mean, I, I think that's an absolutely brilliant definition. I'm trying to think about, is there anything that's I don't really like? Good. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. It's an amazing vision. I guess for me, the big question is, all right, okay, that's great. If that's where we want to go to, all right, what's the strategy to get us there? How are we going to start to do that? Because it is more than just 
delivering net zero is also about all of those wider important dimensions of sustainability. So thinking about our environment more broadly, um, thinking about inequalities, addressing um, gender inequality, addressing um, yeah. water issues and so on. Yeah, it's, it's pro productivity, GDP, jobs. What you're saying is that's not enough. We've got to have other metrics that we throw into the mix here that we can gauge whether this is indeed a just transition. And I think this brings us back to kind of two really important dimensions that I'd love for us to talk about. And one is about where all this happens. Like, let's actually come back to what we're all about, which is local. And of course, you know, we can talk about these facts and figures and we can look at what could happen in terms of global job creation, global job losses. But the reality is that these are all going to be very different depending on the region that you're in, right? So areas that are currently dependent on fossil-based industries are going to have a much um, harder time of it, they're going to be much more hit than other areas that might not be dependent on those sorts of jobs. So I think, you know, this really brings us back to this kind of local perspective of how we're going to deal with this in cities, in regions and in industries that are going to be kind of right at the forefront of transition. I think there's there's a combination of, of those two things though, right? The just transition and the industries is that we've been talking a lot about the green recovery, even on justice terms, about the enormous amount of, of jobs that we're, we're trying to create, specifically in, in Scotland when we've been talking about it. We're talking about 100,000 new renewable energy jobs. That was the Greens headline. The SNP were somewhere around three quarters of that. But is that a just transition if the jobs are only created in what can be quite an unjust industry and a very specifically sort of skilled industry for a very specific type of, of worker or employee? That's a really interesting point. So if you think about the the you know many millions of households we're going to have to retrofit, okay? And you think about many of the measures that we've got to to take in the next few years, there are questions about the extent to whether those measures are going to be uh, replicated at the same frequency over the long term. So I take for instance lagging a loft, uh, putting double glazing in, we'll see a spike in demand for this and the jobs that that creates, but will those jobs still be there 10 years after that? And so then it really starts to push at the boundaries of what you you can define as a, as a sustainable job for a just transition. Oh, I'm glad you talked about a sustainable job, Matt, because I think this is it. For me, it's not about thinking about, you know, just clean jobs or green jobs or green skills, but it's about jobs that are better. Do these new jobs, do they have the same sort of career progression? Do they offer the same sort of benefits? Do they offer the same sort of opportunities like, for example, around unionization? And I think the answer right now for most of that is no, they do not. And unless workers are bought into this, unless people are bought in and want to transition because they have something better to move to, we're never going to bring along everyone. And actually, I want to talk about something that's kind of quite close to my heart, which is around some of the gender issues in all of this. The energy sector is one of the worst sectors if you're thinking about diversity from a gender perspective. I think it's probably, you know, has diversity issues across the board, but I've explicitly been looking around this, you know, from a gender perspective, you know, despite the fact that women make up almost 50% of the global labor force, they're only um, covering about 22% of the energy sector. And when you start to look at management, well, that's even worse. So, over a third 
of the UK's top energy companies have absolutely no women on their boards. And more than two thirds have no women on executive board seats. And that is a massive issue when we start to think about what this means for the transition of the energy sector and the increase possibly in the number of jobs in the energy sector in our clean energy transition. Absolutely. Spot on. I completely agree. So I just wanted to broaden out the discussion briefly and also introduce a bit of a quiz because everybody likes a quiz. There was a fascinating report I read, which was about the greenness of stimulus index. So basically, um, Vivid Economics have gone across 30 different countries and ranked them by how green their stimulus is, how green their recovery package is. Who do you think came out on top? You don't know which of the 30 countries, so you're essentially picking from planet Earth. But if you had to pick one, who do you think it might be? I think um, overall, I, I think on paper, in terms of the size of it, the scale of it, the rhetoric around it, I think it might be the US. Ooh. Well, you might be right, but let me just clarify the question. <laughs> it's the proportion. So how green, so the size of the overall stimulus doesn't matter. It's kind of the proportion of the stimulus package. So 80% green, 90% green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be teeny tiny, mm. but you, you're going for the US. I, I think so. I think there, there was a whole thing about the things that they've included as as green, getting stuff over the line. I, I'm going to go for New Zealand. Okay, New Zealand. Right, so the US is mid-table. Okay, okay. Almost every green dollar is wiped out by uh, 1.5 non-green dollars. I'm not sure New Zealand were on this, actually. All right, then then I'll, I'll put a different guess in if New Zealand aren't part <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Yeah, go, go, go. I'm going to go with Finland. Finland. Okay, Finland are, let me count, eighth. Okay. Top was Denmark. Yeah, it makes sense. Hazard a guess at where the UK came? Uh, tenth. Tenth. Okay, Becky. You said there were 30 countries in total? Yep, 30, yep. Yeah, I'd say around that. 10 sounds about right. Fifth. Ah. We do pretty well on this. Wow. Not because of anything that's been announced like recently particularly, even though there have been some interesting stuff, which we'll talk about later, but largely because of all the stuff we did beforehand, okay, or, or that was already kind of in the pipeline. Just going back to Fraser's point about the absolute size of investment, really you cannot look beyond the European Commission um, particularly Germany, in terms of the the number of euros, pounds, dollars being spent on green stuff. These are the the countries, or you know, collective of countries, confederations that are that are really leading the charge. Now, Fraser, we asked you to do a bit of homework, I think, on the US and Biden's stimulus package. So, so maybe just before we we break, it would be great to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. So Biden's package, it's obviously Biden's package. I never want to say that again in my life. Obviously. <laughs> The, the US stimulus package, the jobs guarantee, is heavily focused on industry and heavily focused on infrastructure. I think what's interesting in it is while it's obviously a ton, a ton of money, it does really, really well to recognise justice, which is something that I think the US, at least the US left, has always been better at than a, a lot of other places. But it recognises justice. There's a lot of money going towards uh, clean energy in low-income areas and deprived areas which is, uh, I think, for me, is a really exciting focus. But what's super interesting about it is that within infrastructure, it includes not necessarily jobs that are decarbonizing, but jobs that are clean by nature. So there's a big focus on the care sector, about how care jobs are green jobs because they're low carbon, because carers are at the front line of climate emergency, sort of at the front line of wildfires, at the front line of, of flooding, hurricanes, and that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting idea that that care jobs are green jobs. 
that seems to have caught on in recovery discussions in the UK and particularly in Scotland as well, where this election we've been talking about this national care service where the UK are talking about it too. It's almost like they may be a bit polluting, but actually they have a kind of positive role on the well-being and functionality of the system that may be being crushed by various impacts of climate change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's an interesting conversation when we're talking about if you remove the green element a little, I guess, in Scotland and the UK, when you're talking about um, post-pandemic recovery, when you're talking about jobs, it's not just green jobs that are part of the recovery, right? There are other jobs that that need to be developed and need to be funded. And care is somewhere that's at the front of everyone's mind after the pandemic. It's something that is largely carbon neutral. Um, and it's in- interesting to see that being picked up here as well. Well, I think this is a really interesting conversation. You know, what is a green job? And actually, for, for me, I think the conversation would be much, much more focused if we actually just said, you know, every job's going to have to be a green job if we want a net zero and a sustainable future. If we want that future that kind of aligns with some of the definitions you gave us earlier, Matt, you know, everything has to be a green job. And I think actually the devil's going to be in the detail of how you simultaneously create a society that is sustainable, that is on a pathway to meet our net zero commitments in the the timeframes that are required, whilst also enabling economic recovery post-pandemic, but also just economic development because there's lots of regions where, you know, pandemic or not, that's what needed to happen. So it's about bringing together these kind of two, you know, often considered quite disparate strands, you know, bridging the gap between a sustainable net zero future and a future where people have better jobs and that are more available for all of society. Speaking of of better jobs, of jobs on fair work terms, of, of more secure jobs, more sustainable jobs, a little a little quiz question from the Scottish Trades Union Commission, who uh, Trades Union Congress, sorry, who published the report. How many jobs do you reckon that the STUC think can be opened up over the next 10 years as part of a, a COVID recovery? So so just just to clarify you're talking about scotland only scotland yes scotland and you're talking about additional jobs versus today yes new jobs okay so i know reading the cambridge econometrics report that the ccc highlighted they said uk wide they're expecting a a bump by 2030 i think of one percent in employment that equates to about three hundred thousand jobs uk wide so if we were to take that as a benchmark Scotland being less than 10% of the population. I don't know. I'm going to go 25,000. I'm going to be more ambitious and say, you know, Scotland, we've we've got the opportunity to really harness the energy transition, look at the amount of investment being put into the northeast of Scotland and the energy transition zone. I don't know how those jobs would be classified if they would be classified as Scottish jobs. So I'm going 50,000. 50,000. What did you say, Matt? 25? I'm assuming... 25,000 additional jobs, but that doesn't count for all the jobs like Becky's just said of oil and gas, where they're having to transition from one sector to another. So these are new, these are people who are essentially unemployed now who will have jobs. Okay, okay. The actual number from the STUC report, um, hold on to your socks, is 367,000 jobs. That's monstrous. But that's across energy, new jobs and renewable energy. That's in the affordable home building plan that's been at the front of most of the kind of election discussion this time around, around the extension and the the dueling of various sort of public transport, railways and that kind of stuff, waste, land use as well. So it spans loads of sectors. But within their, their vision for a green recovery, 
367,000 fair work terms, union supported jobs. Yeah, I guess because you've got direct jobs, indirect jobs, induced jobs and all the rest. Yeah, okay. And I love that you brought us back to talking about things like building efficiency and low carbon heating and mobility and sort of new forms of generation. For me, this comes right back down to kind of the heart of our podcast, local, local zero. And I think the local lens is so important when we start to talk about these things, right? Because actually, if you're talking about creating new jobs in these areas, delivering this in a local way brings huge potential benefits through things like coordinated planning. So you can start to look across heating, mobility, generation, efficiency, and bring these things together in a way that makes sense through those local strategies that can drive engagement with local communities, build trust, tap into local knowledge, help local development in the local context and start to unlock co-benefits and so on. And I think that's kind of the heart of what we're looking at, isn't it? Is why local could be such a key facet in delivering all of this. Agreed. Yeah. And now to get some answers, I think. Uh, I am Miriam Brett. I am Director of B-Section Advocacy at Commonwealth Think Tank. We're a London-based think tank working on ownership strategies for a democratic and sustainable economy. You guys have been doing at Commonwealth loads of uh, really, really slick and really cool stuff around Green New Deal, really big ideas around building back better. For you, coming out of the pandemic, what are some of the key policies and ideas we need to be focusing on for a, for a prosperous green recovery? Great question. So I think, firstly, just on the Green New Deal, because generally it's kind of rooted in a recognition that the causes of climate breakdown and the inequality crisis are one and the same, and they're rooted in an extractive, unjust, unequal economic system. So the Green New Deal really joins climate justice and social and economic justice together through a public directed programme for rapid decarbonisation of the economy that really builds the foundations for a post-carbon future. And in doing that, we can create millions of good green jobs and decarbonise the economy in the process. And I think this is particularly important just now, not least because of the escalating climate crisis, but also our role as, as wealthy countries. You know, we have contributed the majority of emissions, often through resource extraction from other states. So we have a much greater responsibility just now to rapidly and justly decarbonise the economy, but also in the run up to COP as well. You know, there's a lot of talk just now about the UK being a world leader. In the run up to COP, I think there's there's a, a window, an opening to turn that rhetoric into a comprehensive agenda of policies to actually see that happen. And in terms of our economic priorities I mean there's like 101 things that we could speak about here so I'll just I'll just speak through through three and I think one of them is the need to create good green jobs I think what was missing in the UK budget was a stimulus package to create good green jobs the length and breadth of the UK and what we need to see still is a green stimulus package that takes advantage of current low borrowing costs Um, to actually see that through. And Scotland needs a host of well-paid, good green jobs. And these jobs could be in areas like decarbonising the housing stock is an absolutely critical one, building a new generation of of social housing, supporting afforestation. It's about peatland restoration. So a really comprehensive programme for green jobs. And I think part of that is about reconceptualising 
how we view green jobs. Often it's when people think about green jobs, that's confined to areas like renewables. And while that's incredibly important, other areas of the economy are actually low carbon. So if we look at care work, for example, which has been you know, massively highlighted in terms of the, the imbalances and injustices embedded into the current care system, care work tends to be low carbon work by its very nature. So building a new vision for care, one that isn't rooted in for-profit values, one that values care workers properly with good paying conditions, that can be an important role in our green recovery as well. So when we speak about green jobs, we need to speak about the economy as a whole. The second kind of area of priority is that of land reform. Now, we've come an incredibly long way in Scotland um, with land reform, but we also have a really long way to go because our starting point was not good. And the last area that I want to speak about in terms of a priority is that of housing justice. We know in terms of the, the health impacts that poor housing can have on folk, that damp, mould, poorly insulated housing, overcrowded housing, all of these things can have massive health impacts on, on people in the, the longer term. But we also know poor quality housing has massive environmental impacts as well. So looking towards uh, programmes like a national retrofitting programme, for example, that can reduce fuel poverty, particularly in rural communities where that's a, still a really prevalent issue. That can also create good green local jobs and it reduces emissions. So I think looking at policies and programmes like that, uh, alongside a kind of broader reimagining of the housing market, introducing rent controls, for example, should, should be a priority just now. Also increasing our, our social house building um, to secure good homes for all, but creating jobs in the process of doing so. And maybe, you know, in the aftermath of COVID as well, exploring the use of properties that have actually been made vacant by COVID to repurpose them in the aftermath of something as devastating as this pandemic and its economic shock. We need to really reevaluate the fundamentals of our economic system. So those are just three of the many, many areas of priorities that we should be looking at. Yeah, we, we could do this all day. This could be a series in itself. <laughs> One thing I think that's interesting when you say sort of reimagining the systems, the systems that sort of led us to where we are, particularly with climate. As we're coming out of COVID, when we talk about a green recovery, there's maybe a conversation that we need to have about how we measure the success of that. So are we measuring it by how quickly we can get back to levels, sort of pre-pandemic levels of growth? Are we talking about size of the economy or do we need to move away from those measures? What do you think? The way that we measure our economy is so far detached from providing the type of economy that we actually need to see. And that's, you know, made so much more urgent and prevalent in the face of the climate crisis just now and the, and the timescale that we actually have to address that. It's reflective of, and it helps to drive damaging policy agendas because that, that our goals are not the goals that, 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 um, that they should be. And I think Scotland's come some of the way there, I think being part of the wellbeing um, economy government and the work of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance has been incredible to highlight those the, the failures of the current approach. If we are to fundamentally reassess the way our economy operates, uh, who it operates for, who it's owned by, whose interests it's, it's, it's operated in, that necessitates seismic shifts in our economic structures. And, and for me, that should be rooted in the democratisation of our economy. So, you know, if, if we look at the post-war period, 
I'd argue that we are still seeing the benefits today of the institutions that were built, of the safety nets that were created in the aftermath of that post-war period. And that necessitated a big upfront cost that necessitated really bold, visionary thinking. But the, the legacy of that, we still see the benefits of that today. And I think embedded in our fiscal metrics that we currently evaluate success under is a, a real short-termism in thinking. And actually what we need to be doing now when we're looking at how do we challenge the inequality crisis? How do we challenge the climate and environmental crisis? We need fundamental and transformative shifts in how our economy operates. And that necessitates longer term thinking as well. So I think the way that we measure our economy is held back in many, many, many ways. But one of those ways is that it drives short term thinking that is not conducive to long term sustainability of the economy. What role do you think local can play in a green recovery from the pandemic? But, well, firstly, I think there's some pitfalls that we need to avoid. When we're looking at you know, reimagining a sustainable economy, the reason that we need to reimagine how our economy is owned and in whose interests is because there is a danger that we might fall into an agenda of greenwashing or simply just sort of greening areas of the economy without actually challenging the driving forces behind climate and environmental breakdown and behind um, the inequality crisis. And I think a good example of that is land ownership in Scotland. And I think some of the trends that we've recently seen are kind of big landowners buying up loads of land in Scotland under the guise of kind of greening, greening that land. And I think that's that's the reason that we need to look at ownership and we need to look at democratising the economy and we need to look at locally led and locally driven strategies. Because we know that the concentration of ownership of wealth and power in our economy strips workers and communities of the wealth that they create in common. And I think this is particularly important as we look to recovering from the pandemic because there is a danger that we see an, an Amazon recovery that what we're going to see is high streets really struggling, is local businesses really struggling. And actually, there has been a handful of pandemic profiteers off the back of this crisis. If we look at the way that the platform economy has benefited massively, that platform economy is rooted in extraction and in exploitation. And I think in place of this, what we need to see is, is transfers of physical and financial assets to local communities to really redirect wealth control and benefits to local communities. For your money, though, Maria, one, one big headline idea, what's it that you want to see at the front of, of green recovery plans for the next couple of years? I think it's interesting because if we look back to the pandemic and the way that it was initially spoken about as this great leveller, <laughs> the virus itself does not discriminate but our economy does and our society does and those who were already vulnerable those who were already marginalized disproportionately shouldered the cost what it did was expose the stark imbalances of power and reward that have been designed into our economic system our economic system is also often spoken about as you know it's broken and in many ways it is because you can see the outcomes of it and it's devastating but it's not actually broken it was designed it's, it's doing, it's what it doing exactly what it was designed to do. <laughs> and those power imbalances are facilitating a dilapidation of our ecosystems. And that's fueling you know, climate breakdown and creating vast inequalities in wealth and income in our society as well. 
we need to see the inequality crisis and the climate crisis as inherently intertwined. And so our economic system is driving both climate breakdown and imbalances in power and wealth. And those that have contributed the least to this, people in communities that are structurally marginalised, that are held down, that are kept poor by a system, are most likely to be affected by it. And that is why one of the many reasons that we need to tackle this is at an economic systems change level, but it's also why we need to see the climate crisis and inequality crisis as intertwined. And I think that scale of ambition is important because, as so many before me have have highlighted, the way in which we treated COVID is all, with the sense of urgency is, is the way that we need to treat the climate crisis just now. And we can't be timid in our approach because there's a, there's a deadline and, and, and we're getting closer to it. And we know that the current economic system is is driving climate breakdown and time is running out to actually tackle this. So we need to harness that energy found amid the pandemic for kind of seismic shifts and bring that into an ambitious programme of policies and strategies for how we actually build a recovery off the back of this. I think it boils down to, and I'd mentioned the the post-war period before, but I think it boils down to the the need to see a 1945-style moment. This involves a chance to press reset on our economy and and fundamentally build a a new economic system out of the wreckage, one that is rooted in climate justice, one that is rooted in economic justice. It's about the need to, to press reset and build something much better out of the wreckage. Huge thanks to Miriam Brett, Director of Research at the Commonwealth Think Tank. That chat ranged widely across a load of subject areas that we've covered in more depth in previous episodes as well, not least the widespread benefits of community energy projects, which you can hear more about in our last episode, Power to the People. Next though, Matt and Becky have got our second expert guest for this episode on net zero and COVID recovery. Hello, my name is Mary Spowage and I'm the Interim Director of the Fraser of Allender Institute which is an economic research institute at the University of Strathclyde. The Scottish economy has been through an absolutely unprecedented year. And I know that word has been used a lot um, in terms of the economic impact of this crisis, but it's been absolutely unbelievably large. At the height of the lockdown um, last spring, we we saw falls of around a quarter of economic output. And obviously this has been like no other economic crisis in that, you know, this sort of impact on the economy has been deliberate. You know, we've shut all these areas of the economy down in order to protect public health. One of the big questions is, what is the impact going to be in the labour market in the long term? We haven't really seen those impacts yet because of government policy interventions to protect the labour market. But, you know, really, what is that impact going to be once those kind of, you know, the the sort of training wheels come off and we see, Mm. you know, what's actually going to happen to the labour market? So we haven't felt the full force of this yet. Certainly not. A lot of it's still in the post, unfortunately. So I'm wondering if we can sort of maybe flip our conversation to think a little bit more around how this is playing out in the context of some of these bigger transitions that we're also seeing, you know, that we've been talking about before any of this hit. So we know that we need to deliver a net zero economy as we move towards 2050. It's built into our legislation. And what that means is that there are going to be huge parts of the economy that need to transition, need to adapt, need to change what they're doing. Obviously, COVID has had a massive impact on our economy in general, but this is happening in the wider backdrop of 
a massive transition that's needed for us to hit our net zero targets. You know, what sort of an opportunity do you see in terms of a green recovery? Can Scotland take advantage of that? Is it critical to our economic recovery? Like, how do you see these things going hand in hand? I suppose it's linked to the fact that um, the large challenges that the Scottish economy had prior to the pandemic haven't gone away and some of them have been exacerbated. So, you know, obviously dealing with climate change, dealing with the challenge that we have around demographic change, dealing with changing technology and, you know, the inequalities that we have in our society. And they all feed into um, and, and would be um, supported by um, the sort of the issues that we have around productivity. So all of these challenges are still there. But I suppose the large circuit break we've had in our economy could provide an opportunity to do things differently. It's certainly accelerated a number of um, initiatives around technological change. It's maybe made everybody think a bit differently about the model of working and how they might use office space or city centres in the future. And those have obvious links to potentially helping us deliver some of our climate change goals. Obviously, Scotland, you know, within the UK has a kind of unique sort of view of this because of the dominance of the oil and gas industry. Now, whilst this is not what it was before, it's still a significant part of our economy. It's around 5% of output just on extraction. And then there's a further, you know, sort of 3 or 4% on support services. And then you have all of the supply chain ripples throughout the economy. Has the oil and gas industry been particularly hard hit by COVID-19? I'm guessing, I'm just thinking just one element of that. I know you, you, you identified a whole range of different jobs here, but putting, you know, rig workers together in a space which is difficult to social distance and if you've got infection, I mean, is, is this what you're saying? It's been a particularly difficult sector to adapt to these changes. It has been difficult to adapt to these changes. I think I would put them in the, the camp with things like construction, which were really heavily shut down in the first lockdown, but have found ways over the summer as things opened up to adapt. And they're not back at what they were, but they're not too far off. Have we had a glimpse on that basis, a a small glimpse on what cutting out that oil and gas sector might look like to the economy? Let's say we've temporarily shut it down. We've, We've had a bit of a glimpse, have we not, of what net zero might look like in Scotland, even just for a few months? Well, it's an interesting question because obviously the hope would be that this is transition. This is, you know, transition of these um, this sorts of skills, um, the, you know, the, the high salaries, hopefully, the supply chain to, to newer, cleaner, lower carbon alternatives, rather than it being this industry disappearing and a new one emerging. The oil and gas industry is part of the answer and part of the transition to, to net zero. It is, and it kind of has to be. You can see that over the last year, the numbers of businesses who are sort of going all in on net zero and making themselves part of the solution. So it's not it's not as simple as sort of shutting that down and, and having a new industry to replace it. Yeah, so it's, it's almost all the bad bits of a net zero transition without any of the good bits. But, you know, what we saw in 2015 with the oil price shock was very telling. It had a massive impact on the onshore economy in Scotland. Like never before, we saw the, the, the ripples onto the onshore economy. And there was a gap that opened up between Scottish and UK economic growth at that point, which has never really been caught up. So does this mean Scotland's got a slightly different kind of green recovery challenge to the rest of the UK? Does it give us a very different context in which to act? And, you know, does it provide us with different sorts of opportunities? 
I think it definitely provides us with different sorts of opportunities. And to be honest, a lot of the progress that's been made in Scotland is is, is in these sort of easier bits of transition in terms of um, energy generation. And I'm not saying that's easy, but when you look at trying to tackle things like heat and those other sort of thorny issues about the way our homes are heated and how, how we, we deal with that in the future, you know, it does make, um, you know, transition to renewable energy generation seem, seem like a, the, the easier part of the journey. So let's bring this down to kind of what it might mean for people kind of on the ground and in society. And we were we were chatting earlier and Fraser kind of wowed us with the number of potential new jobs that could be created in Scotland, you know, being somewhere in the region of 300,000. And it was I mean, massive. And I, I guess, as you say, not all of these are going to be necessarily what we might immediately think of as a green job. So what's this actually going to look like for people, for workers as we move forwards? Where are these jobs going to be created? Is everyone in Scotland going to see this benefit? Or do you think that it might be concentrated either for certain types of workers or in certain regions? Yeah, I mean, I suppose not to be too much of a statistician about it, but that's who I am. So there we go. Um, I mean, it depends how you define a green job, I suppose. And, you know, it does seem like it's kind of got to the point where it's every job that it's not just about green, but it's, you know, it's good quality. It's, um, you know, it's the sort of job somebody wants to have. Um, it enhances their quality of life and these sorts of things, which are all important. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we actually wrote an article about this um, this week uh, in terms of, the sorts of jobs numbers that are estimated by different um, potential investments. And I guess some of the questions one would ask is, well, if we're spending money or government investment on, say, a green retrofit programme, you know, which can generate lots of jobs and, and construction, you know, OK, great. But what what are you not spending the money on? You know, what were you going to spend it on before? So it's not just, you know, well, that will generate jobs, sure. But what the other stuff you were going to do would have generated jobs as well. So, you know, what is it about these jobs that are, are more preferable? Are they more locally focused, which they might well be, you know, or, or, you know, why are these better jobs to generate? Is it just because of what they're doing? That's fine too. But we shouldn't focus too much, I think, sometimes on on these jobs numbers because at the end of the day, it's about what's the best way to spend that money, I suppose, both to generate economic activity and jobs, but also what's the best investment so that we see more return in the future. So on that, Marcus, I think that's a really, really crucial point. It's not just the jobs numbers, it's what the job numbers then provide. And I've got you got your briefing in front of me here and, and you, you split it down, you know, direct indirect and induced impacts is this what you're saying that some some can lead to direct jobs some indirect jobs and some wider kind of supply chain ripple effect jobs absolutely and and some of the key questions are to ask how much leakages are out of scotland you know how much do we because you know if if you're you've got a bunch of construction jobs how much is stuff are they importing from other countries because that's that economic activity leaking out of scotland the less sort of import intensive an industry is the more jobs it can generate because that will sort of enhance and increase the economic multiplier effect that you get from investment. Is there also a consideration of kind of where these jobs might go to next? So rather than just looking at kind of that more immediate impact in terms of jobs that could be created now, is there any consideration of the career progression that these jobs could have and the people that might be going into these jobs and where they could go to in the future? It's a really good point, actually. Um, And one of the other points we make in our our article is about labour supply, it's all very well saying, okay, we're going to spend this amount of money on a green retrofit programme, which is so great, but where are the people going to come from? Do we have the people in our economy to fill those jobs and do they have the right skills? So, you know, we talk to industry a lot um, and, for example, in the construction industry, they're 
hoping, maybe gearing up for you know big programs of these sorts of uh, in this sort of area to to retrofit buildings so that they're suitable for our low carbon future. But they need a kind of long pipeline of work to be able to get the apprentices in to train, train them up to ensure that we have that kind of labour supply there. So this is a big challenge. You know, you you may have the money to spend on this, but will we have the people who can do it? Something that we've talked about a lot, Mary is these jobs happening, like Becky mentioned earlier, coming up in industry, they're coming up in supply. But like you mentioned yourself, um, a lot of the, the sectors that have been hardest hit, hospitality for one, they're also struggling. There's a lot of people out of work and out of pocket in that sector as well. How do you think we can sort of broaden the, the green recovery to include not just industry, but, but other sectors as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. And, and you know, the, the trouble with the Obviously, the fact that the hospitality has been so hard hit, it really impacts on a lot of people who have precarious contracts, who have low wages, who tend to be um, be younger. And it also has a really um, important regional dimension in terms of the impact on particular parts of, of the country who rely quite heavily on these sorts of jobs. There's a big case, I suppose, to be made to to value jobs in hospitality and tourism more in our economy. People talk about a future Scottish economy and it's all about, you know, high tech, green jobs that are sort of world leading technology development, fintech, you know, life sciences, you know, all of these different things, which are great and really important. But it it, it remains the case that the majority of jobs in our economy will be in things like retail, accommodation, food services, caring, public sector. And in terms of hospitality and tourism, you know, it's a really important part of us selling Scotland to the world. We want to bring visitors here to enjoy Scotland. We want them to come and buy our goods and services. And, you know, having a a workforce of, you know, highly trained, skilled people is a really important part of that. So, of course, Scotland is, as it stands, uh, still part of the UK. And so we have the complication of two different governments, uh, two different parliaments working together Uh, to deliver this green recovery in Scotland. Of course, it's going to take both governments moving towards um, this, but it it doesn't necessarily mean that both governments might be pushing towards the same green recovery at the same pace, using the same tools. So big question, how do you see, having worked in economic policy for so long, how do you see these two governments having to work alongside one another to deliver a green recovery? And how have they been good at it in the past? (laughs) (laughs) don't have to answer Um, that last bit (laughs) uh, yes having worked in economic policy for so long come on Matt Um, but yes okay fair enough there are a lot of challenges there and you can see obviously um, in recent years especially the last couple of years the UK government has obviously shown more willingness to try and invest directly into um, the devolved nations I suppose around energy and climate change you know Devolved reserve nature of it is a little bit more fuzzy than some other areas. So there are potential there for disagreements. I think it will be a challenge. There's also obviously the the layer of kind of local government to consider as well. The various schemes that the UK government have announced recently, such as the Community Renewal Fund and Leveling Up, for example, which are putting local government at the heart of, of bidding for money to do various schemes 
presumably one of the, the goals of some of those schemes will be to promote different initiatives which can help us meet our, our low carbon ambitions. So do you think the local dimensions a really key dimension then in driving this green recovery? You know, like what role can you see for local authorities, local businesses, households, communities in achieving this? Well, of course, we all we all have an important role to play, <laughs> but individuals aren't going to be able to do this by themselves. We can all um, put um, our uh, our plastics in our blue bin, but you know, really you need the systems there to, to allow you to help the country meet its goals. I mean, obviously, local government have a really important role in terms of waste disposal and collection. They have a really important role in terms of housing and they have a massive part to play in terms of making sure our housing stock is, is at the right level to, to be energy efficient and that sort of thing. And they're, they're you know, a big part of the housing house building programme as well. So thank you so much, Mary. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I hope you can stick around for Fraser's section on future fiction. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay, so Fraser, over to you. Yes, thank you very much, Matthew. So for the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game where I present our guest and Matt and Becky with a brand new technological innovation and they have to decide if it's real, i.e. it's the future, or if I've just pulled it out my backside, in which case it is fiction. So this episode's Future or Fiction is Feel the Burn. So the gyms reopened in Scotland just last week, thank goodness. But one gym in particular, not necessarily in Scotland, is doing something special. Researchers have built a storage system that harnesses the kinetic energy from manual gym equipment like rowing machines and spin bikes and uses that to supplement the gym's energy supply, powering things like lights and air conditioning units. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? I, I know why you've gone down this route, Fraser, because you were in the gym this week, weren't you? <laughs> if, if your Twitter account is anything to go by, I can almost tell how many reps you did as well. <laughs> <laughs> I tweeted once, thank you very much. <laughs> Felt like a thousand tweets. Yes, I was in the gym. I was in the gym. No, it's, this is a good point. I mean, how many times, I, I'm, I don't frequent the gym too much, but um, yeah, what a waste of energy. So I, um, when I lived in New Zealand, I used to teach a third year class and I used to show them this, I think it was from the BBC actually, this little clip where um, they had connected up a house to a, uh, a building next door and they'd gotten people on bikes that had to do the cycling to allow the house to operate. So <laughs> all of the bikes were connected up and when somebody wanted to take a shower, it was like, quick, get on the bikes. We haven't got enough energy. Faster, faster. <laughs> so, That's wonderful. Um, I mean, that was certainly, I think, for, you know, TV entertainment, but it do- it's not that far of a leap <laughs> to say that, that this could actually be implemented in practice. Mary, do, do you do, yeah? Do you have any inside info on this? So, so like, kind of human hamster wheel type uh, idea, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, gym bunny wheels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can imagine the size of the batteries they might need, and you know, I, I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. I think it might be fiction. I think it might be fiction. Mm. You think I've just made it up because I sound particularly buff this week after getting back to the gym? Is that <laughs> is that what yeah. it is? I think you were you were thinking, God, I'm lifting some serious weight. I wonder what 
this could have otherwise been useful. Do you think? Uh, yeah, I do. Do you think I was standing in the? I was in the gym this morning, and I went, "Oh no, I forgot to do future or fiction again." God, I'm, I'm lifting tremendous amounts of weight. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I do wonder, though. I mean, because it, I, I've heard of kinetic dance floors. I, I think uh, roads have even started to use this. I think where they they take the the, the weight transfer. I, I may be talking rubbish there, but certainly the dance floors I've heard about. Much of the gym equipment actually can be, I know lots of it's weight, but some of it can be like resistance. And the obvious thing is just to tie that into some kind of generator. And in fact, I think some of the bikes, I I may have even been on a bike that actually uses some of the power it generates to uh, light the screen that you're looking at the front. For me, this isn't an engineering challenge. This is comes down to a kind of cost benefit challenge because I believe it can completely be done. I don't see any issue in terms of like the actual engineering ability to do it. For me, the question is, is like, it sounds like it's not something that would be cheap to do, right? You'd actually have to do quite an amount of retrofit in here. And so I don't think that the benefits would outweigh the cost unless it was for kind of branding or, you know, there was some other reason for doing it. So, you know, I think, I think I'm going to have to go future with this one because I do think that somebody could just be incentivized to do this like even though they're probably not going to be reaping financial rewards for doing it right so your future mm-hmm. Mary I, well, I'm going to stick with fiction I'm sorry I'm naturally skeptical you're an economist it's understandable <laughs> <laughs> I, I've really got to get this one right because my performance has been so poor of late somebody actually texted me the other day and said are you purposefully getting these wrong to provide a little bit of color and texture to the game for, for listeners no, I'm just not good at this. Um, I'm going to go with Becky on this because I suspect... Oh, no, wait, I want to change my answer now. Matt's going with me. No. <laughs> oh, no. Just uh, So what, you're changing now? You're fixing No, I'm not. I'm not. We'll, we'll oh, both do you really? <laughs> I, that was just to throw me. Right, I, I'm going future because somebody is doing this, but I agree with Becky. It doesn't make economic sense currently. Okay, so we've got the hosts, two futures, and Mary's going fiction. Because it doesn't make any economic sense. Like Matt says. <laughs> <laughs> We're all kind of saying the same thing, but I think Becky and Matt are maybe saying that one day soon it might make economic sense. That's it. Spot the climate change researchers versus the economist. <laughs> okay, okay, the answer is. fiction yeah. get more text although although not because i was just lazy in the gym this morning and forgot to put a future of fiction together there was a kickstarter in the u.s a couple of years ago who tried to raise five thousand dollars which is actually quite a, a small sum for this kind of project tried to raise five thousand dollars to put together their own sort of self-sustaining gym they raised a total of five dollars over the course of a month <laughs> <laughs> So I'm presuming their their audience didn't think it was economically viable either. Okay. Well, I mean, power in the US is so cheap. Yeah. I mean, wrong country to start with. <laughs> You're going to have to give me an easy one next week, Fraser. I'm going to get some hate mail now for that. Yeah. They, they have like diesel generators that run the treadmill for you in the US. Yes. <laughs> I knew I should have changed when Matt... <laughs> you really threw me there, yeah. You should have. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Fraser. Well played, Mary, well played. Nil pois for me. Okay, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, we've had a lot of fun this week. And thank you very much again to Mary Sparridge uh, for coming along and uh, providing us with such insight. Um, 
We also want to just quickly name check the pod that uh, Mary's part of. Uh, it is the Fraser Verlanda Institute podcast, and you can find this on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. And um, hopefully, I'm going to come along next week and, and chat on there. So, uh, looking forward to that. So, thank you for listening. Before we go, uh, if you want to contact us, please do so at hashtag local zero and use the handle at energyrev underscore UK. And until next week, goodbye. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Produced by the Spoken Media.